The Bob Murphy Show, episode 123. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. On this one, I'm going to be covering some of the economic fallacies used to justify the political lockdowns that have happened in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. So to be clear here, I am not talking about whether people should adjust their behavior in light of the coronavirus. In fact, I'm one of the rare libertarians, it seems lately, who is in favor of people wearing masks and uh, if businesses want to insist on new policies for their employees or customers, I'm generally sympathetic to that. However, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about governments using coercion in order to influence behavior ostensibly in the name of reducing the transmission of coronavirus. So the first thing I want to mention is this distinction between physical and social distancing. Okay, so the popular term that's been used now in this discussion is to say social distancing, but to me that's a misnomer and it actually kind of creeps me out. So I think a much more appropriate terminology or term would be physical distancing. And that's actually what Michael Osterholm, the the guy who founded SIDRAP, Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy Analysis, has uh, recommended. So perhaps it's just a quibble, but for whatever reason, the phrase social distancing has just creeped me out ever since people started using it. It seemed contrived. And it it does strike me that it has some sort of (laughs) different agenda involved besides just the minimization of disease transmission. And also on the face of it, it doesn't make any sense, right? That, you know, it's, it's not keeping away socially from people that's the issue. It's physically keeping away from them. In fact, Michael Osterham, who founded SIDRAP, he's University of Minnesota. He's a specialist. He was on Joe Rogan's show. I've mentioned him a few times here, I think on the podcast. Anyway, he's my go-to mainstream expert on contagious diseases. And anyway, he also doesn't like the term social distancing. He's coming from, at it from the other way. He's saying, because, oh, we do want to remain, be, remain social during this. Like, you know, call your mother and your older relatives and reach out to people on social media and da-da-da-da. Just don't do it physically. That's what his point is. And so my point is, though, just like if, if you're not going into work or whatever, that's not really social distancing. That's employment distancing. All right. So in any event, um, so that's the quibble. But now the more serious distinction is a lot of the studies that I've seen economists touting that purport to show the net social benefits from lockdown policies, you know, in other words, to say governments were justified in doing what they did around the world in terms of keeping people from mingling and so on. They're actually, what they're doing is, for example, the one I'm looking at right here is called uh, the benefits and costs of using social distancing to flatten the curve for COVID-19 
It's by uh, Linda Thunstrom from the University of Wyoming and several other co-authors. And this is the piece that Krugman linked to in a recent op-ed when he was trying to justify these measures from an economic perspective. So Krugman's angle was to say, hey, Donald Trump and his ilk are trying to tell us that it's the economy versus public health. And hey, this stuff is you know being blown out of proportion. Anyway, it's the economy, stupid. We got to reopen the economy. And I, Paul Krugman, are going to say, no, that's bad economics. We economists know, or the good ones among us know, that it's a cost-benefit thing. There's trade-offs. And using standard economic tools, we can see that these measures were justified, these political measures, and Donald Trump is wrong. Okay, so now I, Bob Murphy, am saying when they try to justify this, at least some of the papers I've seen, and one in particular that Krugman linked to, they're not actually even trying to show what Krugman's claiming. Instead, what they're doing in this paper is showing that what they call social distancing, I'll call physical distancing, is worth it, is a better policy for people to follow rather than just to pretend the virus doesn't exist and go about with our day-to-day behavior the same way we were in the United States in February. Okay, and so specifically what they do in this paper is they take a standard epidemi, I can't say that word now, the adjective, I can say epidemiology, but epidemiological, there you go, model from, you know, that field. And then they're just plugging in, okay, what, how would the virus have spread if everybody behaved the same? And then they say, okay, now let's put in the fact that people avoid each other not like infinitely, right? They don't just have all, all social interaction goes to zero, but they say, you know, let's let's assume that there's a drastic reduction in how much people interact with each other that's supposed to correspond to the lockdowns. And then they look at the total deaths in the one scenario versus the other. And that's how they come up with the reduction in mortality due to social distancing, as they call it. All right. And so that's, so my point is, there's a there's a huge difference between saying, it would be justified even on economic grounds if Americans, or, you know, apply the analysis whether country you want, change their behavior once news of this, you know, danger of the pandemic became aware, it became public knowledge. It's one thing to say it was a good policy or it conferred net economic benefits properly measured for Americans to have drastically altered their behavior in light of this new information, that's one statement. It's a different statement to say governments imposing coercive measures to restrict movements to make Americans do things they otherwise wouldn't have wanted to do, that that conferred net benefits relative to the voluntary counterfactual where Americans adjusted their behavior voluntarily in light of the new information. You see that? So really what you would need to do is to show what were the cost benefits of letting people voluntarily adjust to the virus and then compare that to the counterfactual or to the, you know, the real one, if, if, if that's the way you want to try to model it, of what actually happened with the coercive measures. All right. And so doing it the way they did it and the way Krugman endorsed in his op-ed analysis vastly overstates the net benefits of the lockdowns. So here, folks, notice I'm not getting super Austrian and making methodological quibbles about cardinal utility or something. I'm saying even on its own terms, these analyses are fundamentally flawed or at least the way that they're being used, right? So I can't speak to how Thunstrom et al. themselves have been promoting their study and what they're trying to say. But 
certainly for Krugman to be railing against Trump, where clearly Trump is complaining about the governors having coercive lockdowns saying people want to go back to work, that sort of thing, that's not justified to point to this type of study. And so in particular, the reason it overstates it, it's, a, it's on both dimensions, on the cost and benefit side. So on the cost side, the political coercive lockdowns are going to have a much higher cost than a voluntary response would because just think it through. Other things equal, when the virus, when the news of the virus hits and people become aware, oh my gosh, this thing's a real, this is a real thing and you know, I could get sick or I could give it to somebody I love or just in general, I, I have altruism and I don't want to spread this thing unnecessarily. So who right away is going to stay home? Well, people who don't work, people are right away going to reduce how often they go out. They're going to stop going to concerts. They're going to you know, maybe economize on their shopping, start doing Instacart and whatnot, ordering more from Amazon, right? So those things would happen automatically. So the real low-hanging fruit would happen. People who can telecommute might talk to their bosses and say, hey, I really don't want to go out. Can we, can we work something out? Okay. So the people who can minimize their interactions with others, who can maintain physical distance, would do so, the, the, the least cost people would be the ones you'd expect to do so in a voluntary arrangement. So then if the government comes along, when you say, okay, so what difference does it make on the margin if now the government imposes a lockdown? What it means is those people who, even knowing about the virus and hearing about it, still wanted to go to work, now they can't go to work. Okay, so again, it's, it, it overstates the effects of the political measures to just look at what's the change in employment from February to the end of March, let's say, to attribute that entire change 100% to the political orders would be wrong. And again, it's, it's, my point is it's not merely um, a percentage change or something. It's that in terms of the costs, in terms of forfeited economic output or whatever, you would think that the least cost ones would have been the people who already on their own adjusted, or at least to a large extent, it would have been them. Or, or again, going the other way, um, the people who now can't go to work, who wanted to go to work, are the ones that, gee, that was, it was really important for them to go to work. That's why, even in spite of the virus, they would have gone had it still been legally available to them to do so. All right, so that's why the cost, the economic cost, is different. And then on the benefits side, it's a similar story that it would be wrong to count all of the benefits from reduced physical interactions among people and attribute that solely to the coercive orders when a lot of that would have gone away anyway. Okay, so again, you can see how on the margin you're getting uh, much less bang for the buck in terms of reducing interactions. And on the other hand, the, the marginal cost at the point at which the lockdowns make, have an effect is much higher than happened up to that point. All right, and so that's why even if it were true, even if this analysis were true that Krugman linked to, for example, to say yes, compared to, if, if the only two options are we have the way Americans behaved in February and we have the way Americans behaved, let's say, by the second week of April, and those are the only two choices, pick one, and the government and the, and 
the way Americans behaved the second week of April was at least partly the result of political measures. If those are the only two options, then th what this paper is showing is that was justified. It passes the cost-benefit test. So I, my point is, even if you were fine with that insofar as it goes, it does not follow that actually the coercive political measures were justified. It's entirely possible that on the margin, those things failed the cost-benefit test because most of the benefits that you got you performing that analysis, you would have gotten anyway, and a lot of the costs you would have avoided. Because again, we would expect other things equal. The workers who would have kept going to work had the government allowed them to would be the ones that their job was really important to them. Whereas the people who could have more easily avoided going to work would have done so anyway. And so the lockdown wasn't necessary to stop them from doing it. Now, related to all this, I'm just going to raise this, I'm not going to dwell on it. It's surprising to me. I don't think I've seen a single person recommend this or even just raise the possibility as a theoretical curiosity. Why is it just assumed that the way to deal with this ostensible market failure, because again, in terms of economics, you know, standard mainstream textbook economics, why would some coercion be necessary here? Oh, because people are short-sighted and selfish, self-centered, I should say, and they're not fully taking into account the fact that when you go out either to work or to the grocery store or what have you, especially with this particular virus where you could be pre-symptomatic and be a trans, you know, transmitting it, still be contagious for a couple of days, that you could be unwittingly causing damage to other people. And you're not fully taking that into account when you make your own decisions about, do I want to keep going to work? Do I want to go to the store tonight? And so the point of the coercion is to correct for that market failure. Okay. So my point is, okay, since when among standard ec economists and, and their models and policy framework, do we say there's a market failure like that where people don't fully take into account the costs of the negative externalities they impose on other people and the way we handle that is a top-down central plan coming from the government? No, normally what you do is you say, okay, let's put in place a Pagovian tax or going the other way, you could do a subsidy. So rather than the government issuing flat out orders about, hey, let's have everybody stay home. Oh, although we realize if, if that literally happened, we'd all die within a week. So that can't be the answer. Okay, so everybody stays home except essential workers. And we'll go ahead and define that, who those workers are. All right, instead of that, why not instead just say, okay, you going out of your house imposes $100 in social cost that you're not internalizing. So going forward, you know, if you leave your house, you got to pay $100 every time you leave your house. That would certainly make people reevaluate how often they want to leave their house, wouldn't it? All right, or you could come up with more sophisticated things, more uh, appropriately tailored to the actual ostensible harms you're causing you know, it could, it could vary based on when you go out or, you know, to go into a crowded place would be more expensive than to go out in the middle of a field, blah, 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 blah. So I realize there might be problems with implementation. But again, my point is I, I haven't seen anybody even mention this. And by the way, it would be one thing to say, okay, yeah, we had to lock down immediately. We didn't have time to go through and debate all the niceties of how are we going to tax people and keep track of it and blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. But now people are talking about when do we reopen 
this might be a two-year process because who knows if there'll ever be a vaccine and we got to have contact tracing in place and blah, blah, blah. I'm saying, okay, I'm, I'm sort of surprised that I haven't seen a bunch of economists coming forward with elaborate plans for how to impose a Pagovian tax system. Or it could be the other way around. If you don't like the tax, you could pay people to stay home, right? You could say, ah, yes, you're performing a, a social benefit by you staying home. So if you're scared or you, you out of altruism that isn't your utility function, you don't want to get your you know, grandma who lives with you sick. And so you're choosing to stay home from work. Well, it, that you're not just showering benefits upon you know, yourself and your grandma. You're also showering benefits on society at large by you doing that. And so the government should send you a check for that. Right, so there's a little bit of overlap there with people trying to justify the high federal su- um, supplements to the unemployment benefit checks, but that's completely well, not completely, but that's largely arbitrary and it's pretty crude, and they expire in July. And a- again, you should also be paying people who telecommute. Right, it's not just a matter of whether you're laid off or not; it's a matter of it, it, it's less convenient to telecommute, and so you should be getting subsidized for that if the way you want to handle this is to view it as a, as a negative extra or as a positive externally by staying home. Okay, so again, obviously, <laughs> I'm not recommending they do this stuff and maybe I'm giving them ideas and I was like, Bob, Ixnay on the Pagovian stuff. But nonetheless, it does seem curious to me that so many economists just fell right in line with, ah, yes, whenever there's a market failure, the, the answer is they have central planning from government officials. And, and central planning with no coherent plan that they just keep updating every week, right? That's, so there you go. Now, let me move on to um, this issue of the value of a statistical life. So in these cost-benefit analyses, what they end up doing is they show, okay, there's a certain economic cost to changing behavior, of course. People don't go to report to work. Obviously, that's going to reduce the flow of economic output. So there's a cost there. But then when on the benefits side, they say, ah, but we uh, avoid excess mortality or we reduce mortality by imposing these measures. And so what they do is they calculate how many lives they think they saved or how many deaths they avoided by these measures. And then they got to multiply that by some number. Like, so how do you value a life? Now here there's this concept of the what's called the value of a statistical life or VSL. So this is a concept that's in economics and in public policy. And this, on the face of it, this sounds horrible, right? This sounds like the caricature or the, the stereotype of economists as bean counters with, who are soulless and, and cold-hearted that, oh, you're just going to put a number on the value of a life? Give me a break. You can't do that. But the response is in this literature, well, we do that all the time, right? If you have a choice between two cars and one's more expensive and has, you know, better padding and it's heavier. So if you get into an accident, you know, you're less likely to die and maybe it's got um, more airbags and whatnot, but it's more expensive. If you buy the cheaper model, there's a sense in which you are increasing the chance of your own death and anyone who rides with you in order to save money. So there's a sense in which you just put a value on your life and the people who ride in the car with you. And you can see this all over the place, these trade-offs. So there's two occupations that are otherwise fairly equivalent, but one is more hazardous. In equilibrium, people will be paid more in the more hazardous occupation, presumably because 
they need to to get sucked into it to be willing to comp you know that compensates them it's called a hazard pay right so that's standard stuff and the point is economists have gone and looked at that and also they can look at government measures so i personally methodologically feel much more comfortable with the studies that just look at interactions in the marketplace either consumer decisions or worker decisions to try to back out those numbers to see what are people's preferences regarding the value of avoiding death statistically. But I think they also look at stuff like if you go and just Google this and, and look up, you know, what is Investopedia or, you know, <laughs> Wikipedia or somebody say about the concept of the value of statistical life, a lot of times they will couch it in terms of government policies to say, oh, the government could spend an extra $10 million making the highways a little bit safer, or they could spend the money giving extra vaccine, flu vaccines or something, you know, to subsidize that. So where should the government spend the money? And the point being, if you want to have some sort of rationality there where, oh, gee, they should spend it where it will save the most lives. One way of getting a benchmark is to say, okay, in general, you know, how, how much do we normally in other contexts value a life? And so, you know, if you're, in other words, if the government's spending a bunch of money on one area and you go and run the numbers and it says, okay, for the amount of statistical lives that we're saving by this policy and how much we're spending, whoa, we're spending like $30 million per statistical death avoided. That's too expensive. Why don't we allocate that money somewhere else? Right? So that's the idea. Okay. So given that, what have people been, what have economists been saying when they've been trying to justify these coercive lockdowns? Let me go to a, so David Henderson, David R. Henderson at Econlog, he had a post where he, and it's back in April 12th, 2020, and he starts out with this quote. So this isn't David talking, this is he's quoting someone. Quote, even the simplest cost-benefit analysis suggests that the U.S. government should be willing to spend up to $65 trillion and lock down the country to avoid extra deaths. And then this is now David talking, saying, this is from Luigi Zingales from a piece that he published at promarket.org. So, of course, folks, I'll link to all this stuff at bobmurphyshow.com slash 123. And then David, so I'm still reading from David here. He says, that $65 trillion is not a typo. Luigi, who blogged briefly on EconLog, is actually advocating that the U.S. government is willing to sacrifice three years of GDP to save what he estimates to be 7.2 million U.S. lives. But here's a good rule for reasoning about anything, colon. If your model tells you that you should take measures to save 7.2 million people in a way that will likely cost the lives of over 30 million people, and if a large percent of those 7.2 million are in the pool of 30 million, there's something seriously wrong with your model, right? So David's point is, let's just step back from this for a minute. Luigi, he's calling Luigi because I think like they know each other. He's saying his analysis has led him to say the U.S. government should be willing to give up three years worth of GDP in lockdown measures because of the coronavirus. Because, and, and where Zingales gets these numbers, he estimates that by flattening the curve, blah, 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 the deaths in the U.S. will be a lower number versus a higher number, and the difference is 7.2 million. And so he's saying, okay, 7.2 million, and then he's actually using a figure of, um, some people are saying, for people who are over 65, the value of a statistical life for that demographic is $9 million per person. 
And so he's taken 9 million times 7.2 million and come up with 65 trillion. That's, that's where these, that number's coming from. So he's saying, okay, because these measures of lockdowns would avoid 7.2 million deaths largely concentrated among the elderly because he's focused on who's going to die if there's hospital congestion. And since the standard literature says in that demographic, the value of a statistical life is 9 million, you multiply those together and that's the benefit of avoiding that many deaths. And so therefore, we should be willing to spend up to that amount. And Zingales does say three years worth of GDP um, forfeit in terms of a lockdown, right? So it's not just David making that comparison. Zingales himself realizes how big is that number? That's three years of GDP right now, All right. So now David in response is saying, whoa, 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 just step back here. If you shut the economy down for three years, you know, in terms of the current measures, a lot more than 7.2 million people are going to die. Maybe 30 million people are going to die. And David's, I think, just, you know, grabbing that number. And so the point is, how does that make any sense? That even forget num- you know, dollars on your own terms, a lot more people are dying. And then David's point also was, in a lot of that 30 million, it's not like it's 30 million different people. Like a lot of those 30 million would be the very, you know, the elderly, the vulnerable people that you're talking about. So it's a really weird thing to say, we should to, to stop this group of 7.2 million dying, we should do something that will kill many of them and tens of millions of other people on top of it, right? So something's got to be wrong. Now, what's interesting is David couldn't quite put his finger on what is wrong, right? He literally says, still, I couldn't put my finger on the main problem and I still can't. In the cost-benefit analysis course I taught at the Naval Postgraduate School over the years, I used the VSL analysis and I typically use a number between 4 million and 10 million for that value. But even though this clearly was not Zingale's intent, he has made me question whether I was right to do so. This is a puzzle to which I don't have the answer. Okay, so obviously David is right that something's screwy with that number, or sorry, with that analysis, but he, as of that writing at least, wasn't able to quite put his finger on, okay, what's going on with Zingale's analysis? Because again, this VSL stuff, that's not some crazy thing that some of these economists made up just in this context. This is a thing that's been around the literature. And as David said, he used it himself when trying to you know, teach students about public policy and how should you be, quote, rational and do things that maximize lives saved and so forth. Okay, so I think I've, I have at least two points that really show what's going wrong with Zingales' uh, analysis, right? And let me read to you another statement he made just to make sure you don't think when I, when I point out the second flaw that I'm putting words in his mouth. So in addition to the quote that David said, he goes, Zingales goes on to say, since $65 trillion is three times the US GDP, the United States should be willing to stop production for up to three years in order to eliminate the extra deaths. Okay, so again, that, and so my point, just to anticipate where I'm going with this, folks, there's at least two main conceptual flaws, and that right there is one of them. So, you know what, why don't I just hit that one first, since I already queued it up, because it's a quick point. So my point is, even if it did turn out that there was something for which the U.S. government, acting on behalf of the American people, should be willing to spend $65 trillion to avoid, it doesn't follow that the way it would pay for it is to shut the economy down for three years. Okay, so just think that through for a second. I'll, I'll repeat it. Just because there's something that 
the U.S. government needs to spend thirty, or sorry, sixty-five trillion dollars on implicitly in terms of opportunity cost, it doesn't follow that the right way to pay for it is to just say, okay, for the next three years, nobody goes to work and GDP is zero for three years in a row. And, and you, when you say, well, why? I mean, apply it in your own life. Let, let me, all right. So, if you make a hundred thousand dollars a year and you want to go buy a three hundred thousand dollar house. You could say, yeah, that house passes the cost-benefit test. That house is going to confer more than $300,000 in benefits and the cost right now is $300,000. So, yep, I, our house, we're willing, you know, our family, let's say, we're willing to pay $300,000 for that house. It does not follow that the way you pay for it then, the way you finance it, is you take your 100% of your income for three years in a row and just give it over to the current owner because you would starve to death, Right. So as simple as that is, I'm saying that's one of the problems that Zingali's made in his analysis. Now, I think what's going on here partly is the benefit, like the marginal benefit of a good versus the inframarginal benefits and what's called consumer surplus. So let me put it to you this way. Let's say right now you spend, I don't know, $300 a month on water in your household, like both in terms of bottled water that you get at the store and you know your utilities for your tap water, stuff like that. And let's say, you know, your kid comes home and says, Hey, hey, dad or mom, let me uh let me show you this. I want to get this new gaming system and it costs three hundred dollars. Can we get it? And you say, Oh, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, you convinced me. It's your birthday. If the way you paid for that was to just not buy any water that month. And say, well, because it's $300, right? That would be stupid because then your kid and you and everyone in the household would die of thirst, right? Even though, no, it, we decided our cost benefit has said it was worth 300. And so we stopped the spending of 300 on the water. What? Okay. So <laughs> I hope I'm getting people to see just how silly and elementary this mistake was on Zingales's part. But again, even if it turned out you should be willing to spend $65 trillion on something, it doesn't mean the way to do it, like where, where we find the money, as it were, in terms of opportunity cost, is to just not produce anything for three years in a row. That doesn't follow. And it gets a little weird because it's, as I was pointing out to David when, when, the, when he was on Facebook puzzling over this thing and I said, it's kind of weird because it seems like we're saying, like if US GDP is roughly 21 trillion, it sounds like we're saying we should actually value GDP, $21 trillion in GDP more than 21 trillion to avoid this kind of problem. And that seems weird, right? Like, don't you value $21 trillion worth of output at $21 trillion? And so now I think I've figured out what the answer is. Yes, you do value $21 trillion of output at $21 trillion. But that's because that's the, you know, on the margin, multiple, you know, you're the, the marginal, <laughs> the value of the marginal unit then times all the preceding units, you know, that, that's the way that works in terms of market valuation. But there, again, there's the element of consumer surplus. And so uh, if output were only $1 million, or if it were the percentage right now of, of that corresponds to that first million dollars in output, I think in a, then you'd say, okay, if that's the only thing that were available, you would be willing to spend a lot more than a million dollars for it. Okay, so I think that's what's going on, or at least partly what's going on here, is that, that sort of fallacy. Okay. Now, let's circle back. The $65 trillion figure is wrong too. So again, what I've shown so far is even if for some reason that worked true, 
you wouldn't finance it that way. And if you're saying, well, how would you finance it? Well, I don't need the, you could borrow money, for example, and do it that way. All right. But again, or it's like in World War II, the U.S. government ran up a huge debt. And so you could argue if, if you stipulate the neoconservative view of history and so on and approach to government, you could say, ah, yes, it was entirely worth it for the American people to spend such a, a gigantic sum of money in the 40s to defeat the Nazis in Imperial Japan. It doesn't follow that the way they should have financed that was to just not have any food production during those years. Duh. Instead, what they did is they ran up a huge debt that then would be paid off over time or actually would just be outgrown. But you get the idea, all right? So going back to the house example, the fact that you think a $300,000 house is worth it, what do you do? Well, you might go get, take out a mortgage, all right? So there you go. Okay, but now let me circle back. The $65 trillion figure is, is crazy also. So where this stuff comes from, like how do they come up with the value of a statistical life? Again, I, I gave you some intuition before of how they do it. Um, it's not that they're actually looking at people dying in an event. Rather, what they do is they look at people's behavior that changes slightly on the margin mortality risk. And then they sort of back out. Okay, because you're, you're willing for this amount of money to increase your risk of dying from 0.2% to 0.4%, Therefore, we conclude that you value your life at such and such, right? That's the way they do it. So let me exaggerate. I think you'll get it in a second if I do it this way, even though this is a little bit not analogous to what they actually do, but you'll get the point. So let's say you go up to somebody and say, hey, how much would I have to pay you to play one round of Russian roulette? Now, in case this was a thing when I was younger, no one knows what it is anymore. What Russian roulette is, is you take a gun that's got, you know, six can hold up to six bullets and you only put in one bullet and then you close it and you spin it so that you don't know where the bullet is in there. And then you stick the gun to your head and you pull the trigger. Okay. Of course, no one should do this. This is, this is a very bad game. Don't play it kids. Don't play with matches either. Say your prayers. But the point is, what would you, what would someone have to pay you to play it? Now, some people might say, oh, no amount of money in the world would get me to play that thing. But I think for some people, that's not true. And by the way, this isn't just because, oh, yeah, they're, they're materialistic. I mean, what if it's somebody in a bad neighborhood, you know, in the ghetto? Or what if it's somebody growing up in a, in a very poor country and they realize how much good they could do if they got a bunch of money, right? So again, let's just, hypothetically speaking, let's say somebody says, yeah, if you gave me a million dollars, yeah, I'd play one round of that. Okay, so the way this VSL literature works, you look at that and you say, oh, the fact that you were willing to have to entertain a one-sixth chance of death, right? Because there's, there's six chambers for the bullets and there's only one in there. The fact that you were willing to put, take on a one-sixth chance of death in order to get a million dollars means you value your life at six million dollars. See how that works? That's so I, I again that's that's not exactly what they do in this VSL literature, but I think you'll get you kind of get the main point if I do it that way. Okay. So now my simple point is, even to the extent that that's true and that goes through in that analysis, okay, I see what you mean by that. Does it follow that you would be willing to kill yourself for six million dollars? No, it doesn't. It doesn't even follow 
that you would be willing to play Russian roulette six times in a row, a, a million dollars a pop. Even though, again, by stipulation, we say this person would play for one round for one million. Now think through why is that? Well, because after the first round, the person, if he survives, now has a million extra dollars. So now to get him to do it again for a million, he would be much less likely to, right? Probably at the, the very least would want a lot more money. So you see how that works? Okay, so going back to the VSL literature, the fact that there's a sense in which society in the United States and under modern conditions, blah, 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 is willing to pay something like $10 million to avoid a statistical death on the margin, it does not follow that if situ the situation drastically changes such that now 7.2 million extra deaths are about to hit this year, that that means society should be willing to pay $65 trillion to avoid it for the obvious reason that after the first few hundred of those where we're paying 7.2 million at a pop, or sorry, we're paying 9 million at a pop under Zingales' numbers, we're poorer, right? So we have less ability to keep doing that. And certainly we can't do it 7.2 million times in a row. At some point you'd say, no, we're not as wealthy anymore because we've already paid 9 million a pop for the first million people. And now we can't afford to keep doing this, right? So that's the problem there in, in terms of just the simple extrapolation of those numbers. Another way of seeing this is just step back and think about it. What does it mean to say the value of a statistical life is, so Zingales' number, again, was 14.5 million in general, and then he said 9 million for people over 65. So in general, is it actually true to say like someone in the United States economically is worth 14.5 million? And no, most people don't have that net worth anywhere close to that. So clearly it can't be the case that we as a society should be willing to pay $14.5 million per person to avoid their death in a situation where a lot of people are going to die because we just don't have that many resources per person, period. Right? It's as if you can't afford it. It's impossible after a certain point. So what, you know, the, the trick, what was happening, what was driving that big number is that we were talking about statistical deaths on the margin in certain risky situations where the chance of mortality was only slightly increased or decreased based on things being cheaper or more expensive. And that's how people were backing out those big numbers. But clearly, it doesn't follow from that that if there's going to be huge numbers of deaths because the situation changes, that society somehow construed should be willing to spend implicitly that amount per death avoided, right? Because we just can't afford it. Okay, so those are the two, I think, main flaws in Zingales's uh, cost-benefit analysis. And that applies more generally to these other economic justifications that I've seen. So again, I am actually very much in favor of voluntary measures among businesses and just regular people to adapt their behavior, do what they can to slow the transmission, of course, based on accurate science. But uh, the measure or the approaches I've seen from mainstream economists to try to justify the political coercive measures have just been illegitimate economically. All right, I'll wrap it up there. Thanks, everybody, and I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.